Summit International School of Ministry is the Bible school of Times Square Church. People from all stages and walks of life come to Summit to set aside time to seek God, learn more about Him, and transform into the person that God created them to be. Studying at Summit has opened my eyes to see the importance of having a solid theological foundation. I'm seeing how I'm being equipped daily through classes, assignments, and chapels in order to defend my faith in a world that opposes the gospel. When I first started following Jesus, I was filled with passion and excitement. But as time went on, I realized that I didn't have the knowledge and understanding that I needed to truly live for God and serve others. Even though I had just finished college and had a great job offer, I decided to attend Summit. I was hungry for a deeper relationship with God, and I was willing to put everything else aside to find it. I really feel that what I'm learning here is preparing me for future ministry for sure, but in a more immediate way. It's preparing me to go back to my home church and start discipleship. There's such a great need for that in the church today. Setting aside my phone and being unplugged while at Summit has allowed me to disconnect from the outside world in order to connect with the creator of the world. This environment gives me the opportunity to engage in edifying and lifelong friendships with like-minded believers from all over the world. Friendships at Summit are special. Due to the Summit family atmosphere and small classes, you're given the opportunity to build friendships that just wouldn't be possible at other schools. Some of the relationships I've built here are the very sweetest of friendships. Some of my favorite memories have been made with them. These people are one in a million. Through hearing New Covenant teaching, I now know who I am in Christ. I don't have to be insecure or afraid anymore. I know that I'm empowered by God's grace and I can stand strong in my faith and serve others with confidence. Summit has been a game changer for me. I feel free. Amen. Well, FNT family, always good to be with you all. Bring you greetings all the way from Pennsylvania. I do not dream of a white Christmas. That's why since I married my Southern Belle, we've been coming down here for Christmas for the past 12, 13 years going on now. And I don't think we're going to change that at all. But always good to be with you. God's doing wonderful things at our school. You got to hear just a couple testimonies. And I know you have like godly single young people that love Jesus. So if you want them to get trained for Jesus and maybe find a good spouse too, because that happens, even though they're not allowed to date, it happens. You send them up to us for a year or two and we'll send them back even more empowered and uh, even more ready to serve. But I'm very excited and very honored to be speaking on the last day of the year, because I think the message that the Lord's given me for you today is going to be a good way to review 2023 and maybe even take inventory for how we can better prepare for 2024. I'd like you to go with me to Ephesians chapter 6. I want to talk to you about the fight for your life. Ephesians chapter 6, the fight for your life. And I'm going to take a moment to pray as we prepare to read. Father, I thank you for the way that you love your people. Jesus, thank you for loving your church so intensely, God. Lord, for all of our faults, for all of our inconsistencies, Lord, I thank you that you delight in us and you call us your bride. And I thank you that you've given us everything that we need to win the battles that we face today and the ones that we don't see coming tomorrow. God, we're standing on the edge of a new year. And Lord, by faith, we can say that we are not afraid because we know that you're going to meet us. God, I pray that your people would be revitalized today wherever they need it most. Help us to be open and transparent with you as we go into your word. Let your word look into us and guide us, O oh God. 
We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13, the fight for your life. Paul writes, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. There are few things that make me feel unqualified for life the way that a grocery list can. And I'm talking about when my wife has sent me with a grocery list to the store by myself to find all the stuff that she's written down on there. I am the husband who wanders the aisles with my phone out constantly doing this because I'm trying to find the aisle and the item because my man brain can't track both at the same time. They're just not related enough. Or I'm actually on the phone with my wife asking questions like, where is this? Is this a brand or a food? What item is it? And somehow we are still married and still saved. Praise the Lord. And I've learned there are two kinds of grocery lists. Okay, so there's what I call the essentials list. I'm not allowed to shop for that on my own. That's where the list is about a mile long. It's meant to last for about two months, but it somehow depletes after 10 days and you have to go again. I don't get to do that one by myself. I drive and I lift the heavy things. The second kind of list, this is the one I'm allowed to shop for alone. I simply call it the recipe list. She needs specific items for a specific dish, and she's put me on mission. Go and get these items so I can create this wonderful meal that you're going to get to enjoy. And I love recipe lists because everything on it is connected. There's a clear relationship. It it makes sense, and they're going to come together when I get home to make something wonderful. And when we read our Bibles, when we read Ephesians and other books like it, we want to, in some cases, read it like a a grocery list. You know, Ephesians covers several topics that we're going to be unpacking today. And the mistake that I've been making in reading the book of Ephesians is I've been reading it like an essentials list. It's just a smattering of unrelated items that we're going to need to get us through the Christian life. But it's actually not an essentials list. It's a recipe list. He's giving us items that connect to each other very deliberately. And the thing that sparked this thought in my mind was, I've been doing a devotional since we've been down here with my son and his cousins, because when they play together, it becomes evident that children need Jesus too. (laughs) So we were doing that devotional, and it was in Ephesians 6, talking about the armor of God. And I found myself asking, why does Paul bring up this topic of spiritual warfare at the end of the letter? How does it fit Why this? Is it just the last important thing he wants to say? Or does it actually serve a more connected and related purpose to the overall letter? And what I've concluded is that that's the answer. It's a recipe. Paul's giving us the final ingredient that's going to lead to something wonderful if we can see how to put them all together. But it's going to be kind of a heavier teaching because, again, it's the fight for your life. It's not a cake that's awaiting us at the end. It is something wonderful, but it's something that's going to call us to contend for the things that God has given us. And we have to understand the function of the first word that we read in verse 10, finally, finally, the last thing I'm going to say, 
he's not merely introducing the last item for their consideration. When he says finally, it's just, okay, in good Pentecostal fashion, I'm going to close now for the fifth time. Okay? No, he's saying, I want you to hear one more thing that's actually going to tie everything else I've said together. You've got to hear this last point in light of all the other critical issues that I've brought up. Spiritual warfare is the final ingredient for what everything else Ephesians is talking about. And so what we're going to be doing is we're going to go and review what I call the seven spiritual blessings of the book of Ephesians. And we're going to see how they find their meaning and significance in this call to fight the powers of darkness. The blessings that we're going to look at in chapters 1 through 6 have to be maintained through war. That's what Paul is saying. All the blessings that I've told you about, all of the glories that God has given you in Jesus Christ, they're yours, they belong to you, but they're under constant threat. There's an enemy out there who does not want you to live in them. He does not want you to take ownership of them and see your life and see your identity in light of them. If you want to maintain them, you're going to be in the fight for your life. One commentator put it this way, the church sails with Christ, not in a pleasure yacht, but in a man of war. This is a rousing charge to be sounded forth to the church militant. Why? Because Satan's terrified of you living in what Jesus died to give you. He does not want you to understand the things that Jesus provided by his death. If you want to walk in these blessings, you're going to have to fight for them. Not to own them. They're yours. But to learn how to live in their power consistently, it's going to take a fight. And there has to be something in you that's willing to contend for that. So again, we're going to be taking a survey of the book, starting from chapter 1 onward, making a few comments about these seven spiritual blessings. And we're going to see how they get attacked and how we can defend and maintain them. The first spiritual blessing that Paul brings in is the blessing of adoption. The blessing of adoption. Listen to Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 8. I'll just read them to you for the sake of time, and I believe they'll be put up on the screen. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Satan attacks your identity. He does not want you to be confident in the forgiveness that you've been given. He does not want you to be confident that you are unconditionally accepted by God as a son or a daughter. He wants you to question that. He wants you to wonder if you belong inside the doors of this room. He wants you to go to pray and all of a sudden start tripping in your mind over all the things you did wrong and all the reasons you've, gave, you've given God to reject you. He does not want you to be confident that you're justified, that you're holy, that you're accepted, that you're filled with the Spirit, that you're seated at God's right hand in Christ. He doesn't want you to know that. He doesn't want you to know that you're destined to reign with Him eternally. 
He wants you to forget that stuff and see it as something far off and unattainable. And you've got to learn to fight for that. You have to learn to stand up and make war against the lies that Satan brings against your identity in Christ. Fight those lies by learning to celebrate your salvation every day. Celebrate it every day. When you wake up in the morning and you feel like, oh, every ounce of pessimism within you is bubbling up and you remember all the stuff from yesterday that's governing how you're going to have to face today, look yourself in the mirror and say, you know what? It's going to be a good day because I'm not going to hell anymore. Today might be rough. I don't know what today's going to be like, but there's a tomorrow coming that no demon, no circumstance can touch. I'm forgiven. I know that when he comes and that trumpet sounds, I've got nothing to be afraid of. All my fears are getting slain. All my troubles will be over. Celebrate your salvation every single day. Wake up and celebrate the reality that Jesus has brought you into. Learn to look yourself in the mirror. I tell my students to do this now, actually. So I'm not being metaphorical. Some of you need to do this. You need to go home and look at yourself in the mirror, especially when you feel like you failed. You need to look yourself in the eye and say, God loves and accepts you because of the blood of his son. You need to learn to do that. Some of you live under guilt and shame and condemnation. You need to do this mirror exercise. You need to go home, look yourself in the eye and say, God loves and accepts this man, this woman. Not because of anything he or she has done right, but because of the blood of Jesus Christ being shed on my behalf. The first spiritual blessing is adoption. Fight for it. It's yours. The second is unity. The second spiritual blessing is unity. And by unity, I'm meaning the blessing of brotherly love that transcends all boundaries. The blessing of brotherly love that transcends all boundaries. Listen to Paul's words in Ephesians 2, verses 13 through 16. He says, But now in Christ Jesus, you, referring to the Gentiles, any person of non-Jewish descent, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For Jesus himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Jesus died so that people would no longer hate each other. We don't put it in those terms very often. One of the things Jesus died for was so that things like prejudice and segregation would only exist outside of his church. That's one of the things he died for. We just read it in chapter 2. He died so that all of the things that keep people apart from each other and separated by hatred, senses of superiority, systems of oppression, so that all of that could be crucified at the foot of his cross. That's one of the reasons he died. And Satan wants you to believe that you have reasons to not love your neighbor. He wants you to believe that you have legitimate cause for not fellowshipping with certain people, even though they be called Christians. He wants you to live with hostility in your heart, maybe even believe you have the right to maintain it. The hostility that comes from betrayal, from differing political stances, from language, from legal status, you name it. 
We all are masters at crafting reasons in our mind why I don't have to love that person. Why I have the right to distance myself from them. And we're so quick to critique and to judge. And yet we read this book. We read the gospel message. And what we see is that no, our Savior that we love and worship died so that I would lose my right to hate. So that I would lose my right to be biased. So that I would lose my right to separate myself from other image bearers made after his likeness. So how do you make war against that? How do you fight for unity? Well, you need to make yourself pretty uncomfortable. Who do you have a hard time loving? Who do you have a difficult time associating with? What groups of people do you carry prejudgments about? Are there groups that you've written off? Are you, do you get your labels for groups more from your political party than you do from the scripture? Do we take more of our cues on how we assess other human beings by how our vote is going than we do from what the Bible actually says? And I'm going to tell you something. I didn't grow up in the South. I grew up in Pennsylvania. It's north of the, we're the enlightened northerners. We know we're not. Listen, just hear me. But listen, I heard a lot of prejudice and things like that in my Christian home. I didn't know how conditioned I was to get offended when I would hear people speaking another language in my English-speaking country. I'm going to tell you something. If you get all clenched up inside when you hear people speaking a language that you don't, you start thinking in terms of migrants or things like that, you should question whether you ought to be taking communion. Are you discerning the Lord's body? Are you discerning people that he died for? You have to be willing to make yourself that uncomfortable. Nothing exposed how much prejudice I actually carried in my heart until I went to school at Summit as a student and I did ministry and outreach in a low-income housing neighborhood. I didn't realize how many assumptions I carried in my heart How many things that I never would have considered racist or bigoted, but in actuality were very, very unjust and unjustifiable. Until God put me in a position where I had to love people I'd never had to love before. And it showed me how shallow my Christianity actually was. You want to fight for unity? Sign up for outreaches that you know will not make you comfortable. Sign up for ministries that will put you in contact with people that you know it would be difficult to love. Dare to go there. Dare to put your flesh on trial. And let's see how much of myself is involved in the way that I look at things. In the way that I view others. One of the spiritual blessings you're meant to walk in is unity. And if the only place you know to find that is when everyone's singing together in church on Sunday morning. And the band is covering up all of our mistakes and bad notes. That's not unity. It's a form of it. But might I suggest it's only the tip of the iceberg. I think unity is found when conflict is erupting and someone comes into the building and we wonder, what are they doing here? Now your unity is really being tested. When someone drags on you and pulls on your spirit to say, can you love this person? Are you willing to love them? Involve yourself. Fight for unity by involving yourself in outreaches and ministries and acts of service that are going to put you in touch with people you don't naturally love. The second spiritual blessing is unity. The third is revelation. This one's going to be a little softer. Don't worry. We're going to put the conviction aside for just a few moments. I want to read you chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. It's probably my favorite passage of the entire letter. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, 
from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God." We heard someone bring a word from the Lord to us earlier in the service that God wants us to be filled with his fullness. Well, that is what revelation does. Revelation is when the Holy Spirit causes us to understand truth in a transformative way. And you're entitled to that. You're entitled to that as a son or daughter of the king. Your your birthright is revelation. God wants you to know him. He wants you to know him intimately. Satan does not want you to know God. He does not want you to be open in your heart and in your mind to understanding who Jesus is. He doesn't want you to lay hold of the promised power that we just read about in chapter 3 to know God intimately. He doesn't want you to feel close to God. He doesn't want you to be confident that he's someone you can lovingly know. So how do you fight for revelation? Well, sometimes it's just a simple perspective shift. Do you believe that God wants you to know him? What do you believe that he's like? Do you see prayer and devotional time and reading the word as a a time to perform and show God how serious you are? That's not right. That's just a religious mask. And maybe you don't realize that you're wearing it. That's not your intention. But if God is still this lofty judge that you've got to do backflips to please, you're falling short of the enjoyment it's meant to be. You want to think of your devotional times with Jesus the same way that you think of going to a restaurant to meet your best friend for lunch or for dinner. I love coming down here. Your pastors are my closest friends. And I'm not saying that because they're here. I really mean it. I really mean it. And we met up for dinner, several of us, uh, just the other night, left all the kids at home. It was so exciting to see them. The first thing we did was that we were hugging before we said hello. That's all we wanted to do. That's what your time with the Lord is meant to feel like. You don't have to perform. It doesn't have to be anything special or anything in particular. And my wife and I, we love each other. We're crazier in love now than we were when we first got married. And what's really nice is I don't feel like I have to be talking for us to feel like we're really bonding. We'll go out to eat or we'll go do this or we'll have time at home and we'll just sit there. I just enjoy her presence. And the fact that I don't have to say anything, I don't have to perform. It's like, this is great. She lets me sit in silence. It's wonderful. There's no expectations. That's what devotions should be like. There's no expectations. Jesus wants you to just come and enjoy him and let him enjoy you. Shift your perspective. Fight for the revelation that you're entitled to. When we put ourselves under pressure, you feel like you have to hear from God. God's got to speak something. Those are the people that feel like God never speaks to them. Most of the time, it's because they feel this pressure. I've got to have some kind of encounter. It's like, uh, yeah, you do, but you're wanting that guy's encounter. You want to be able to talk about your journey the way that that girl talks about her journey, and you don't have to do that. Your journey is your journey. Your time with Jesus is your time with Jesus. You don't have to hold it up again. You have nothing to prove. It's not a merit badge that we have to be able to wear coming into church. I'm close to him. I love him. I enjoy him, whether it's in this room with all of you or it's in my prayer closet at home. I'm learning just to enjoy God. 
That's how you fight for revelation. That's how you open your heart to hear from him. And my prayer for you is what Paul prayed for the Ephesians, that you would always be empowered by the Spirit of God to know the depths of his love for you. The fourth spiritual blessing might be a little bit surprising, but it's actually spiritual leaders. Spiritual leaders. Let me read you chapter 4, verses 11 through 14. And this is speaking of the product of Jesus' cross work. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Satan does not want you to trust your pastor. The text that we were read this morning, that's Satan at work fighting against that pastor's ministry. He does not want congregations to trust their pastor and he doesn't want pastors to be trustworthy toward their congregations. He will do anything in his power to destroy the beauty of that relationship. He will do anything he can to disrupt that. He wants us to resent our leaders and the concept of leadership. I'm sure I don't have to tell you how anti-authority our generation is and is becoming. Even institutions are moving away from any idea of hierarchy. How dare we suggest that someone might have power over another person? It's like, well, welcome to reality. And you better be thankful for it. Because when you're a little child, you better be thankful someone else has power over you. Because if we had power over ourselves as kids, the room would be pretty empty. We all would have died a long time ago. When authority and hierarchy are used God's way, it actually brings life. It brings a thriving community. It doesn't bring oppression. And we're living in a time when many church leaders are falling. The way that information moves, these things become very public, and it's easy to fall into mistrust. It really is. And we have to be honest about that. But God places a high value on honoring authority, both in and out of the church. The same Bible that tells us to honor our pastor also tells us to honor the king. And it was Nero when that was written. And that should tell us something. It should make us tremble a little bit when we get too quick to speak evil of those that are over us. God places a high value on honoring authority, whether it's in or out of the church. If you want to fight for your spiritual growth, you got to fight for your pastor. You've got to fight for the people that God has put into your life to disciple you. That God has used as instruments of your growth. Pray for them, for their families, for their spiritual vitality. Because if they're thriving, you're going to thrive. If they feel free to love Jesus and minister, you're going to feel free to love Jesus and minister. Because here's the thing. Remember what Paul said. I'll read it to you again. It's not just that he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to be in charge. No, he gave them to equip the saints. You are meant to be empowered by pastors and leaders functioning the way that they're intended to. It's a mutual relationship. You empower me as a leader. I empower you. There's no one-sidedness here. God has built his church in a perfect balance. You fight for your growth by fighting for your leaders. And sometimes that means allowing them to be human. 
Now, I'm being specific with that. Let me explain what I mean. Don't just remember that they're human. Because I find that people use that dismissively sometimes. Well, they're only human. Like we're really justifying our resentment toward them. Are you allowing your leaders to be human? Are you okay with the fact that they fight the same battles that you do? It's not just that you remind yourself, they're only human. Like you're writing off on your anger. You're excusing your bitterness. You're excusing your slander or malignant attitude. No, that's not acceptable. You have to allow your leaders to be human. And I'm not just one in authority. I'm, I'm a VP at the school. I have a lot of authority, a lot that I'm responsible for, but I still answer to people. I answer to our president. I answer to our senior pastor at Times Square Church in New York. And I have to be okay with them being leaders. Uh, pardon me. I have to be okay with them being human. They're allowed to be. They're, they're not transcended and glorified with the, the master yet. They're still down here fighting the same stuff that I am. And it's not just that I have to excuse my emotion and write off on their humanity. No, I have to embrace their humanity because I'm going to want someone to do that for me. Because I've had people come to me and say, you know, you wounded me with the way you addressed me the other day. I've had to repent to people that I'm over. I've had to repent for things that I've said from the pulpit. I've had to repent for the way that I address somebody in a counseling session. I can't be above that. I owe that as a leader to those who trust me with their, their spiritual life. But at the same time, spiritual leaders are one of the blessings that Jesus has provided for us. If you want to fight for your spiritual growth, fight for those God has put over you in spiritual leadership. The fifth spiritual blessing is personal holiness personal holiness. In chapter 4, verses 20 through 24, it says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Satan wants you to believe that a holy life is unattainable and that your former life is inescapable. He wants you to believe that you are too weak to please God. He wants you to believe that God is too demanding to be pleased. And he will throw any lie he can at you to keep you from attaining the level of holiness and godliness that Jesus has promised to bring you into. You're already accepted. Warts and all, you're already embraced by God. You are already justified. But there's this point in our Christianity where the way that we live is meant to match the new identity we've been given. And we're given grace to grow in that over time. And there's decision involved. There are choices that we make every day that impact this. And that's where a lot of the battle resides, isn't it? where Satan throws those arrows of temptation and fear our way, the life of God inside of you, it is already inside of you, which means you have the capacity already for holy living. You've already been made a new creature. It's time to start developing those new instincts and that new attitude that you've been given. You're, and Paul hits on major things, your speech, your temper, your integrity, your purity, all of those things are given as commands, but what's behind it all? They're all undergirded by Jesus' power within you. 
Paul is not telling us to go after things that are distant and totally outside the bounds of our reach. No, you've been given the life of Jesus. All of those things are within reach. The things that you might see as impossible today, Paul says, no, those things are already within your grasp. Jesus has promised them to you. It's about living by his life and power and not by our own. This is decisional, but what's the decision? It's not so much about I'm going to choose purity over lust or I'm going to choose forgiveness over bitterness. No, it's about choosing the power that's been given to us rather than the lust within us. It's about stepping back and saying, Lord, I don't know how to fight this battle, but you do. And I know that you're going to teach me. And I trust you to do, as, do for me as you did for David, to teach my hands to war and my fingers how to fight until I see all my enemies laid beneath my feet. The sixth spiritual blessing is worship, particularly corporate worship, worshiping together. Ephesians 5, 17 through 21, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Satan does not want you to sing. He will fight against your song every day. And you've got to learn to sing over his lies. He doesn't want you singing songs of adoration because they open you up to the Spirit's power. We just read it. Don't be drunk with wine. If you're going to fill yourself up with anything, fill yourself with the Spirit. Get together with other believers and sing your heart out until the walls come down. Don't get stuck in grumbling and complaining and and worrying about the future and letting your anxiety take over. No, give thanks for all things to God the Father. My wife has put a a background up on her, her iPad or computer. I saw it the other day. I said, that's really good. It said gratitude is spiritual warfare. I'm like, that'll preach. I don't know who said it first. I Googled it. I couldn't find it. But some genius out there, it's true. Gratitude is spiritual warfare. The next time you're feeling cranky, start giving thanks. The next time you're feeling angry, frustrated, hopeless, exasperated, start making a list of every, start with your salvation. I'm not going to hell anymore. And then work your way out to the present moment. Every good thing God's ever done for you, cherish your worship moments. Cherish them. Seize every opportunity to worship with the church. When you come together, don't come into this room hoping they sing your favorite song. Don't do it. Come into this room saying, Lord, I'm with your people. Fill us all afresh today. As we're lifting our, I don't care what they sing, God. Just let the words be real to my heart. Fill us all afresh with your power. God, let us walk out full where we've been empty. Lord, let us walk out empowered where we've been under defeat. Lord, send us out a threat to the powers of darkness. Satan does not want you to sing. And also learn to worship by yourself anywhere. Learn to worship anywhere, whether you've got music on or you've got music off, whether you're in a time of joy or a time of sorrow, learn to lift your voice. If Paul and Silas could sing while they were in the inner prison, and that was a chamber where there was no light and no airflow, in stocks and in chains, stripes on their backs from being beaten by the Roman guards, if they could sing and pray at midnight in a place like that, I want to believe that I can sing anywhere.
I want to believe that you can sing anywhere. Lift your voice and don't let Satan take your song. The seventh spiritual blessing is family. It's your family. I'm not talking about the family of God. I'm talking about your family, your spouse, your children, your parents, your siblings. I'm not going to read the passage simply because it's lengthy, but in chapter 5, verses 22, all the way to verse 9 of chapter 6, Paul gives instructions to every possible member of a Christian household on what their life needs to look like. And the reason is because Satan hates the family. He absolutely hates the family. He hates it when men stand up and lead. He hates it when wives empower their husbands as leaders. He hates it when parents are actively laboring to disciple their children. He can't stand it because those things are a threat to him. Take a survey of the Bible from Genesis onward. Anytime God's wanted to do something big, he looked for a family. He started the world with one, and then he would look for another one every time it was time to transition. And so often he chose a powerless one. And you might feel, my family's powerless. I feel like my family's being ripped apart by the enemy. You're a candidate for God's power to move in your life. He works with the helpless. He works with those who are overwhelmed. Satan wants parents to exasperate their children away from the faith. He wants children disinterested in the things of God because they never see Jesus at church or at home. Something that we've started doing in our church is We don't have the kids' church start, and you don't have to do this. This isn't a critique. This is something that we've done with our community because I've I've not seen an unhealthy aspect to FNT church life, and I, I worship here like I'm at home. And I'm not saying that to flatter you. I truly mean it. But something that we've started doing with our church is we don't have the kids go downstairs until after worship. We have them worship with us in in the big church, in the big service. And the reason we do that is because we challenge the moms and dads what your parents, what your children see you doing here, is this the kind of person they see you being at home? And it's a challenge. There's this call to accountability in that practice, that, and it works for us. It's just what we've decided to do. And I challenge you as a community and as individual households, what are you doing to make sure that your kids see Jesus both here at church and at home? Fight for your family. Fight for your family against the enemy's tactics. Husbands, when we read Ephesians chapter 5, it says that the words of Jesus wash and cleanse his bride. It says that he washes her with the water of the word. And the word there is not logos, it's rhema, which has to do with Jesus is speaking to his bride. And when he speaks to her, it brings a washing, it brings a cleansing. What do your words do to your wife? Do they cleanse her? Do they wash her? Do they make her feel refreshed and renewed? Do they make her feel controlled, manipulated, governed? Wives, are you a source of empowerment for your husband? We don't like that uncomfortable word, submit, submit, submit. But guess what? It it is your command. And it's not what you think it is. It often gets a bad rap. But listen, submission has a lot to do with empowerment. I don't, my wife submits to me, but how does it look for us? And I think it's different for every couple. I don't expect her to obey me. She's got a lot of negotiating power and she knows it. But I need her encouragement. When she says that she trusts me, I can't tell you what that makes me feel like I can accomplish. I don't have words for it. 
when she says that it means a lot to her when I initiate family devotions and it doesn't have to be her saying, can we pray together tonight? When I take the first step to do that and she feels safe, that means everything to me. Wives, are you a source of empowerment for your husband or are you his biggest source of discouragement? Constant critiques and constantly pointing out his faults and where he's not meeting your expectations, spoken or unspoken. Parents, are you presenting Jesus to your children the way that he presented himself to little children? I fear that sometimes Christian moms and dads can be more like the disciples driving the children away. You're not fit to come. You're not good enough to draw near. When Jesus is sitting there saying, the kingdom already belongs to them. Don't keep them away. Bring them near to me. What kind of Jesus are we presenting to our sons and to our daughters and children? And I know we got all the little ones in here today, but I'm also speaking to the adult ones. Are we honoring father and mother? Sometimes there's a line between obeying and honoring, just depending on circumstances, depending on age and things like that. But are we honoring father and mother? Do we lightly esteem them? Are we obeying them? Every one of these areas matters. These are all spiritual blessings that Jesus died to give us. And the more that we walk in them, the more of a thriving Christianity we get to experience. All of it matters. From things as lofty and abstract as our adoption and salvation to things as practical and everyday as the way you love your spouse, the way you love your kids, all of it matters. All of it is sacred to God and all of it is under threat from an enemy that hates you but you have power in Christ to fight for it and to refuse to let the enemy take even an inch of ground. You are in a fight for your life and every area matters. And the key to waging a good warfare in all of these areas is in verse 10. And this is where we're going to close for the morning. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord. What does that mean? It does not mean, oh, be strong in your faith. Trust God with all of your might and with all of your heart. You might think that's what it means. It sounds very natural, but it's actually not. When he says, in the Lord, this is a phrase he's been using all throughout the letter. And it always refers to the fact that you are united to God through Jesus. So when he says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, he is saying, because you are united with God... Because you are bound to him, you are strong. So act like it. Live up to the identity that you've been given. Stop floundering under the threats and lies of the enemy. Stop acting as though you're powerless and there's nothing you can do about what you're facing. Stand up in the strength that God is ready to give you. Take authority over the enemy, rebuke him, put him in his place, and watch things begin to turn around. Be strong in the Lord. You are in Christ. You are seated at the right hand of all authority in the heavenly places. Don't go to God like a beggar. You walk into the heavenly throne room and say, Father, he's at it again. And I need you to step in and do everything you promised to humiliate him and make sure that I'm able to thrive as your son, thrive as your daughter, and take my whole family with me. That's what it means to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. You are strong because of who you belong to. You are mighty because who you've been bound to, not by any of your works, but because of the work of the Son of God on our behalf. Amen? The more deeply you believe that, 
the more deeply you trust him, the more you're going to put hell to flight. Would you stand with me? I'd like to invite the worship team to come. I want to give just a twofold invitation this morning. Some of you truly are in the fight for your life. You've been under heavy, heavy spiritual attack. And I don't care if it's one person or it's 99% of the room because we're all going through stuff sometimes, aren't we? But you just need strength. And I, I want you to come to the altar and don't just come and, and cry it out, weep it out. You've probably already done that. I want you to come and fight back. Celebrate your salvation. Give thanks in all things. Sing until the enemy finally gets the, the hint and turns back. Just worship God with all of your heart, with all of your might, and let your spiritual family rally around you and believe with you for a miracle. Some of you, some of you have given the enemy the upper hand. Whether it's in one or more of these blessings that we've talked about, you've given him the upper hand. And I'm not saying that to now shame you or rebuke you. I want to ask you, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? If he's got the upper hand in your purity, if he's got the upper hand in your allegiance to Christ, if he's got the upper hand with your sense of adoption, if he's got the upper hand with the way that you're treating your family, the way that you're loving people, if he's got the upper hand in the way that you will or will not forgive, what are you going to do about it? You're a son. You're a daughter. You have authority in Christ. Even in the midst of your battle, even though you might have given some ground up to Satan, God wants to give it all back to you. You don't have to earn it back. It's not about that. It's still yours. This is not about earning. It's about taking the fight where it belongs. It's about stepping up and doing what you should have been doing all along. Don't sit under him. Even if you've yielded ground, your father wants to give it back to you today. So let's just go to the Lord and worship. I'm going to pray very briefly. Then we'll sing. And I'm going to turn it back over to Pastor. Lord Jesus Christ, I've spoken what you put in my heart. And I thank you that you love your church. Oh, Jesus, you love your bride so much. And I ask you to speak over us today. Lord, go deeper than what I've been able to bring across, oh God, as we've looked into your word. Let your words wash over us. Let it cleanse us of all the feelings of defeat and despair and discouragement and fear. Let it cleanse us, oh God, of all the compromise and the temptation. Let it cleanse us, oh God, of all the bias and the bitterness, the lack of love. Let it cleanse us, oh God, of the insecurity, of the lack of confidence. Let it cleanse us and wash us, oh God, of everything that's been opposing what is meant to be ours in Christ Jesus. Lord, we take back everything that is meant to be ours. Lord, I thank you that you're fighting at our side today because you love us and you will not let us go. Give us a revelation today of all that you are and of everything you died to make available to us. We love you and we pray it all in Jesus' name. Let's worship the Lord.